Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Timmy Trier, your host, and each week we look at a new book in the public policy realm and ask its author for insights into how they would approach public policy in the U.S. This week we will be talking to Jonah Goldberg, the author of The Tyranny of Clichés, How Liberals Cheat in the War of Ideas. We're very fortunate in that Jonah is able to take time off from his very busy schedule going on Hugh Hewitt, Piers Morgan twice, Bill Bennett, and just about every other talk show you can imagine. And he's here to talk to us at New Books in Public Policy about how he sees the world and how he sees the argument about public policy in the sphere of public policy argument and on the Twitter sphere, in the blogosphere, on TV, radio, etc. Jonah has been fighting in these wars for a long time. Since the Clinton administration, he's one of the founding editors of National Review Online. And he also affects a funny conversational style that I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, I bring you Jonah Goldberg. Jonah Goldberg, welcome to New Books of Public Policy. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. First question of the day, as always here, is who are you and why did you write this book? Uh, I'm Jonah Goldberg. I'm a contributing editor at National Review and the founder of National Review Online. I'm a syndicated columnist. I'm a terrific dancer. <laughs> I'm a fellow, no longer visiting, just simply a fellow uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. And um, for those who don't know, I've known Tevi for over 20 years. I actually replaced him as a junior policy gnome at the American Enterprise Institute in the early 1990s. Um, I wrote this book because a man's got to eat. Um, but also because uh, I wanted to do, you know, my first book, Liberal Fascism, whether you loved it or hated it, and there are people on both sides of that. Uh, Lots on both sides. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, was not a particularly fun read. I mean, if you're really interested in the subject matter, you know, knowledge is fun and blah, 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 let's do an infomercial. But the reality is is that uh, I wanted to write a book that was a, a fun book to write, a fun book to read, um, a little on the lighter side. And um, I had sort of all of these ideas that I had acquired in the working on, on liberal fascism that didn't fit in liberal fascism. And I wanted to explore them in weird and kooky ways. And so that's why I did it. Well, why don't you lay out the argument of the book? In the book is tyranny of cliches. How does the argument flow and what are you trying to get at? Yeah. So the, the, the basic argument of the book is... Uh, and it's one I sort of picked up in large part from liberal fascism, is that, um, uh, let me just start it from the beginning. I got from working on liberal fascism in a biting and, and deep-seated uh, contempt for American pragmatism, the philosophical school, not practicality, right? I mean, I have no problem with, you know, MacGyver being able to make an airplane out of duct tape and chewing gum. I mean, that's great. But um, American philosophical school of pragmatism um, really was the intellectual fuel for American progressivism. And it really remains at the heart of the epistemology, the philosophical worldview of American liberalism today. And the basic argument about that the, the pragmatists came out with was that um, sort of ideology and dogma don't matter. Ideology and dogma are basically cons that as Charles Beard put it, the Founding Fathers basically just came up with the Constitution as a way to protect white male privilege of landowners and all of the rest. And so anybody who invoked principle or doctrine was really doing it to perfect, protect their own self-interest. It was sort of an Americanized uh, version of Marxist false consciousness and the rest. And so thinking through that, and then also thinking through my experience on college campuses, um, I noticed that there was this sort of deep-seated skepticism towards ideology in general among college students. It really drove me crazy, and we could talk about it a bit more in a second. But um, So the, the overarching theme of the book is that everybody is ideological. Everybody has an ideology. Everybody has a, a, a worldview and, um, that we could call ideological. 
But the difference between conservatives and libertarians on the one side and liberals on the other um, is that conservatives and libertarians are honest about it. I mean, you know this as well as I do. Conservatives and libertarians, especially in Washington, are kind of geeks about this stuff. You know, we have huge arguments about whether Whitaker Chambers was right to throw Ayn Rand out of the conservative movement. We wear ties with Adam Smith on them, and we talk about Edmund Burke, and we sort of collect these intellectual figures like baseball cards, and we have huge arguments. Sort of, It's sort of growing up from the comic book world of saying, wouldn't it be cool if Superman could fight the Hulk, to what do you think Edmund Burke would think of George W. Bush? I mean, it's just sort of how we do these things. Liberals don't have the same relationship to their own ideology. They claim that they don't have one. Uh, they claim that they only care about what works. They're pragmatists. They're realists. They live in the reality-based community. And um, I trace the intellectual history of that contention all the way back to the pragmatists and actually a little earlier. Um, and it's my contention that they lie. they're lying. They're lying first and foremost to themselves. They have an ideology. They have a worldview. There's nothing wrong with having an ideology. But because they don't recognize it, because they don't understand their own biases, that ideology tends to manifest itself in these really stupid cliches, um, from social justice to the slippery slope to 10 guilty men to fairness and all of the rest. And I run through them in the book. It's not so much that it's a debunking of these phrases. It's a debunking of these sort of calcified concepts that have worked their way into our literature, our popular culture, our politics, our understanding of history, our understanding of our place in the universe, our understanding of the role of government. Um, that progressives deploy as a way to avoid having arguments, as a way to sort of seize ground unearned by argument. And so the tyranny of cliches is a figurative title, meaning sort of the way that these concepts have sort of grabbed hold of our popular mind and force us to think in certain ways that we shouldn't. Before we get into the cliches, let me push back a little bit on your superhero argument. I think liberals do have heroes when they talk about Niebuhr and Martin Luther King and some political figures like JFK and LBJ, not LBJ so much, but uh, FDR. I mean, these these are heroic figures in liberal minds. Why, why don't those count just like conservatives have their Adam Smith ties? Well, I mean, you, you, with the exception of Niebuhr, um, you sort of are in some ways making my point for me, right? Liberals, uh, and E.J. Dionne writes about this, and he, he admits as much. Uh, so does Martin Peretz and other liberals. Liberals have a different orientation to their history, right? The most, with the exception of Niebuhr, all the people you named are, were people of action. They were people who did things. Uh, Martin Luther King, you know, I'm not saying he wasn't an intellectual, but he's not famous for his writing so much well, as... letter from the Birmingham jail. It's yeah, but, but, but he wrote it from a jail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, and that's one of the reasons why it's fantastic. If, he, if it was letter from the faculty office, it's just a different thing. And... Uh, so liberals' orientation to their own history is much more action-focused. And this is another thing you get from pragmatism. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a political philosophy of action, of doing things. If you go to liberal you know, conventions and confabs and gatherings, the way young liberals talk is very revealing. It is, you know, how we're going to take action, we're going to do things. Let's take to the streets, let's get something Occupy. done. Occupy, right? And... Um, Conservative orientation with its own liberal history, with its own intellectual history, is very different. It's about these men, Adam Smith, who have ideas, who introduce concepts. Um, liberals, uh, as E.J. Dionne puts it, don't like buying into abstractions. They don't, they don't revere the authority of the past, which you would think makes sense, because conservatives are about the wisdom of the past more than um, liberals, and liberals are about utopianism in the future and idealism and how to change things. And so their orientation to the past is basically a story about the good guys who helped get rid of the stranglehold of the past rather than people who found traditions to celebrate about the past. Yeah, I guess another way of putting it is that there are conservative heroes who are doers, or Ronald Reagan or Winston Churchill, but there are so many other thinkers who are the heroes, whereas liberals have some thinkers like Niebuhr, to some extent the case, but they have a lot more on the front of the yeah, look, I, I'm talking... There's, there's a leaning in that direction. I, I, I'm speaking in gross generalizations, right? So, I mean, there are going to be counterexamples on all sides. And, um, uh, and in fact, there's a certain irony. I'm not sure I could have written this book 10 years from now uh, because one of the things we've seen is this sort of really kind of hilarious conservative movement envy on the part of the left, right? Uh, the whole... You, you know more about think tanks than anybody else, um, but the whole... 
history of think tanks is in part a story of conservative-minded academics uh, being thrown out of the university and needing a home. And so they come to Washington. Um, and the irony is, is that those conservatives were so successful in Washington that now the left says, hey, we got to emulate them. We need our own Heritage Foundation. We need our own AEI. And so they start founding things like the Center for American Progress um, in, in part to sort of counteract what the conservative movement is doing. And so there is a movement on the left to embrace the progressive label, but invariably they still don't want to talk about the real the, the intellectual history of progressivism because that is an ugly closet they really don't want to open. I mean, the original progressives believed all sorts of terrible things um, that they don't want to get too close into. They'd much rather use intellectual history as a cudgel to beat up conservatives than as something to sort of actually explore in their own past. Well, actually, you do bust open that closet, both in your first book, Liberal Fascism, and in, in this current book. Uh, the, the think tank point is also interesting. You, you, you rightly note that liberals are bringing out more and more think tanks to have their own counter-establishment to the original conservative counter-establishment. But conservatives and the conservative think tanks seem to me today less likely to hire the intellectual generalists of the days past the Irving Crystal. I'd say you're an exception. I think there's not that many of them. Most of them are now specialists. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think the system completely broke down when I got through. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as, as I fear... Bar the door after you're through. As I fear my paymasters at AI will soon realize. Um, no, but I, I think that's right. I mean, there is a sort of um, uh, moving away from the, the public intellectual in general in the culture, and you find that reflected in the think tanks. I think because you have this kind of status as a generalist and talk about all things... You've been subjected to some rough attacks. There was the Piers Morgan interview where he was uh, uh, kind of not only argumentative, but in, interrogatory, as, as you said. And, and there's been some other attacks that we've talked about. Uh, why do you think that you kind of get under people's skin in this way? Well, when you're as good-looking as I am, it just <laughs> you know, it brings out the worst in people. No, I, I think, um, you know, uh, part, part of the thing I think, and again, any, anyone's ex self-explanation for why other people don't like them is going to by by nature of human nature going to be a little self-serving. Uh, but I think part of it is is that I, I come across as if I'm enjoying myself too much. <laughs> and I think that bothers a lot of people. I think it's one of the things that really drove the left crazy about Andrew Breitbart. You know, and it's one of the few things, I should say one of the few things, but it's one of the things that Andrew and I, who are good friends, um, really agreed on. The importance of being a happy warrior. You know, the, the way the culture war is organized, uh, conservatives are always cast as these sticks in the mud who can't have a good time, they need a truckload of brand just to crack a smile. And from the outset of National Review Online, my, my idea of selling conservatism was to make it clear that conservatives are human beings too, and that we live in the same culture and all the rest. And I think part of it is, is I also... Uh, I'm sort of unapologetic about a lot of things, which I think drives people crazy. And I, look, and also, you can't you can't take away this 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 incredibly snug security blanket that is the liberal conception of the political spectrum, right? Which is what I did with liberal fascism. You know, the the, the essence of the political psychology of the left is that they think they have a monopoly on political virtue. So the further you move from the left, the more evil you become. Right? And that's why, no matter how, whatever schema you're talking about, it, whether it's sort of the, the 1950s movement where we saw the, the spectrum move from a straight line from left to right to the sort of new totalitarianism spectrum that came after Anna Arendt, where it's a big circle and where the far right and the far left sort of meet in the vital center liberals on the other side of the circle, they always define these things where liberals are on the opposite side of all bad things. And... Um, even when they talk about the bad people on the left, they're always given a pass because their heart was in the right place. Um, and what I do in liberal fascism, sort of, I don't know how successful it was, but it certainly, I don't know if it shattered anything, but it put a crack in the facade of that argument and pointed out some uncomfortable truths, that there's a lot of uh, family history on the left that is really ugly and unpleasant, and no one likes to have their family history brought out in public. 
you definitely had some effect because you see so many times in certain magazines. As Jonah Goldberg said in liberal fascism, <laughs> you should get a nickel every time that phrase is used. Well, I'll tell you who I should get a, more than a nickel from. You know, Glenn Beck went across the country giving speeches based on my book and I think, you know, he bought enough for a country house. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know um, but, uh, but yeah, no, look, the book it was vastly more successful than I had any right to anticipate and I'm very glad for it. One of the shocking things to me was that with liberal fascism, so much of that was in the book was low-hanging fruit. It was stuff, you know, if you go through the footnotes in liberal fascism, 95% of the sources are just mainstream, conventional history sources. Um, but it was like a pointillist painting. No one wanted to put the picture together. I wouldn't denigrate those mainstream historical sources. I mean, you, you went to the, the solid, historical, well-researched, well-respected works for yeah, and, I was, your and that's that's sort of the point is that it's you it know, wasn't like you were looking at an alternative history world, right? And 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 people can't say it's a crackpot history if all the sources are from you know sixty five seventy percent liberal historians. You know. I'm glad you mentioned this thing about the kind of the joy of combat. I know there's a lot of funny lines in the book. One of my favorite passages, which I'll read right now, is laws and words have no binding power on future generations. But once Team Progressive puts points on the scoreboard, they can never come out. That's because their conception of history goes in only one direction. Is that something you're, you're trying to achieve? It sounds like that, that you're, you're, you're trying to get at that humor, or is it just you know, naturally when you write about this stuff, that's, that's how it has to be? Um, I don't know. That's sort of... You know, this book is much more in my own voice, right? I mean, this is sort of... Yeah. I, I mean, you know me. <laughs> We've known each other for a very long time. Um, and... This this liberal fascism wasn't written in my voice. I mean, partly because you can't do a book about fascism and tell a lot of jokes. You know, hey, funny thing about the Holocaust, it just just doesn't really work. And uh, and so, but that's sort of what I'm trying to get at, right? Is there's this well, the thing that drives me crazy? In some ways, I, I consider tyranny cliches to be like the liner notes to liberal fascism. Liberal fascism was all about this one cliche, this one concept that was sort of baked into. Um, our understanding of the political universe, which was that fascism was right-wing. and No one ever wanted to question it. No one ever wanted to look and say, okay, well, what do we mean by right-wing? Because if we mean free market libertarian, which is what we call right-wing in America, fascism certainly wasn't that. I mean, it's not exactly like Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini with small government types. Um, and if we mean the other thing that we mean by right-wing, which is traditional values and all of the rest, um, you know, uh, family values, cultural conservatism, Mussolini and Hitler weren't that either. So, I mean, it's sort of like that old routine. Um, that guy used to be on Cheers where he says, oh, I have George Washington's original acts here. Harry Anderson, right? He was, they used to do this routine. I have George Washington's original acts. Uh, you know, about 10 years ago, the handle broke, so I had to replace that. And then just last week, the, the, the blade broke, so I had to replace that. But in spirit, it's, you know, it's George Washington's original act. And the one of the things that you learn when you, Spend as long as I did, like Howard Hughes with Kleenex boxes on my feet in my basement working on liberal fascism, is that the same sort of formulations that allow this myth of fascism to exist actually manifest themselves in all sorts of other ways. And so this idea about team progressive and all of the rest is that the um, there is this idea that the state is the driver of history, right? This idea of the Hegelian God state, that the state... Um, is the binding blue, the engine of all of history. And it is sort of a religious conviction of liberalism that once the state has, once this conception of the state has scored a victory, um, you can never go backwards because the wheel of history can't go backwards. And once you sort of see how liberals conceive of things that way, it's amazing how often they make arguments based upon that assumption. One I'm not even sure they fully recognize themselves. Just for the record, uh, Harry Anderson's appearances on Cheers did lead to him getting his own sitcom. So they, they were Night Court, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in that quote I read a couple minutes ago about uh, when Team Progressive gets their points on the, on the scoreboard, uh, this is a common theme you hear, that, that liberals, when they criticize something, conservatives saying they talk about conservatives rolling the clock back, rolling history back. How would you say that conservatives should counter that argument? I keep getting asked these practical questions about how conservatives can use this, and it's very difficult for me to answer them. Um, I, I, I think that uh, you know, part of it is, is sort of a door-to-door fight about taking back the language. Um, uh, one of the things we all loved about Newt Gingrich, you know, 
in the Republican primaries. Whether we want him to be president or not is a different question. He's a rich bouillabaisse of humanity. But uh, he is fantastic at questioning the premise of the question, right? You know, uh, one of the moderators will ask something and Newt will say, absolutely a ludicrous way to ask the question. And then he'll rephrase it and explain why it was ludicrous and how we should see things. I try to do something of the same thing with this book. And, you know, so when you hear it embedded in the language of allegedly objective journalism, you know, whenever the government, whenever Democrats secure a victory of expanding government or expanding coverage, or well, it's always a step forward. It's always an advance. It's always... Um, a victory of some kind or another. The language, so the verbs of the descriptive language are always these sort of positive advancing kind of things. Obama's new slogan taps into this forward, oh, right? Um, and whenever conservatives do things, as you say, pulling back the safety net, turning back the clock, going backwards. Um, and one of the things I think that's important for conservatives to do is, is, to say, no, we're expanding freedom or we're reforming. I mean, you got to take some of that language. And personally, I kind of hate these Frank Luntz games about which you, words you use and all of the rest, But uh, which is why I try to get past just the sort of focus group word arguments. I'm not doing a George Lakoff thing. I'm trying to get at the concepts that generate these arguments, that generate these cliches. As, as Orwell puts it in Politics in the English Language, a lot of these euphemisms and cliches, he doesn't actually use the word cliche, but these euphemisms, they're sort of like uh, prefabricated hen houses. You know, we accept them all of a piece, and we're sort of forced to let these cliches do our thinking for us. And so what I'm trying to do is unpack them so that, at least for conservatives, it can be a little bit of a sort of a Berlitz phrase book, where when you hear these things, you can say, aha, he's trying to steal a base. Aha, he's trying to get one past the plate on me. Um, you know, social justice is BS. Social Darwinism never existed. Uh, there is no such thing as the right side of history. And catch these people, because if you don't catch it, you've already bought into the premise, and it's very difficult to win once you've already bought into the premise. Well, even the great William F. Buckman, I guess, buys into the pre premise, because his famous line about we want to stand up for history shouting stop, and that buys into the progress, the, this whole premise of forward versus backward. Yeah, although I gotta say, I think, I think, Bill always got a bad rap about this, and I wish I had talked to him about it while he was still alive, because for me, and this may be my imposition here, but I did a lot of thinking about this when I started boning up on Hegel, which sounds <laughs> terrible. Just, I, mean, I, I mean, we should really get the guys at Gitmo to figure out how to get people to bone up on Hegel. But, uh, uh, you know, Hegel has this conception of history, as you know, when you're the PhD here, of, you know, sort of this determinism in history and all the rest is where we get marks and all his stuff about history and historical determinism. And it always seemed to me that that's what Bill was talking about, right? Was this idea that, this idea that history is on your side, right? That, that uh, we have to get on the right side of history or that, um, this concept that history is 2020, right? Or hindsight is 2020. There's, as Robert Conquest likes to say, there's a certain Marxist twang to this concept of the right side of history. Because it was the Marxists and the Hegelians who argued that there was an in inevitable unfolding of history, that history moves in a specific direction. And the way people use that formulation is they basically say, like on gay marriage and all the rest, you have to, why don't you just get on the right side of history? Because you're going to lose this argument in the end anyway, right? So why not, why not get on board the bandwagon now? That's the way they try to use it. And, and they're often right. Um, and they're, they're often right. But one of the ways they end up being proven right is by convincing people to give up the fight. Stop fighting. Sir. And it's sort of like the slippery slope. It's a deterministic argument that I, I, I reject. And so for Bill, what he was doing is saying, you have to say stop to history, to this conception of history as inevitable. That um, you have to sort of dissent from this Hegelian, socialist, Marxist, liberal, progressive, however you want to put it, uh, conception of the unidirectionality of history. Um, and that's what National Review did. And I think that certainly whether he believed it or not, whether I think my interpretation, whether my interpretation is objectively correct or not, the result of National Review was certainly correct. It changed the direction of history. And it changed the direction, the trajectory of the history that all progressives thought was inevitable. I agree with you about the changing the direction of history, although I think it may be a generous rabbinical interpretation of what Bill's text actually says. 
Uh, on the point of intellectuals, uh, you talk about them a great deal. You mentioned Michael Eugene, and you know this is an interest of mine. Uh, but you talk about um, the, the sort of the first intellectuals coming up to France, and um, how this guy um, Comte de Tracy was someone that uh, Thomas Jefferson admired. You talk about the uh, the cool pragmatism of JFK and his with his kids. What do you think should be the roles of intellectuals in American politics, and how are they filling and not filling that role appropriately? Um, I think sort of like. The gimp in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> they should be let out of their box from time to time for our amusement. No, um, I think, I think that, uh, you know, there's, as you know, I mean, there's a great frustration among intellectuals because intellectuals always think, like everybody else, that intellectuals should get more attention than they do. And this is, I think, one of the main reasons why uh, certainly the intellectual left has such France envy because their intellectuals have these half unbuttoned shirts and our celebrities on talk shows and you know, all the rest. And they and in America, you know, they kinda get they get wedgies and they get pants <laughs> and all the rest and it's just a different relationship. And uh I don't know. I think I think you're right, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that it's sort of a sad thing that we don't have more generalist intellectuals, you know, um, that we don't have more people trying to translate um what is going on in the intellectual world? Interestingly, I mean, it just occurring to me, there has been a there has been a real rise of this in the world of science, right? And you have Malcolm Gladwell and Jonah Lair and um, all these guys who are at Freakonomics, that whole trend. There's this they're popularizers. They're popularizers. They're explainers of of either hard science or the hardest of the social science economics. What we don't get are the same sort of thing in the humanities anymore. Um, and I, I wish we could have more of that, but I would rather, given my own predisposition, you know, uh, I would rather have intellectuals have less of a role in public life um, than to have the wrong intellectuals have a greater role in public life. And Like the Bill Buckley line about the Boston phone book. That's right. That's right. Um, um, so... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's my short answer. Uh, I, I wish we had a firing line again. I mean, I do wish that. I think, you know, my answer about the conservative movement when people complain about Glenn Beck or Ann Coulter or, you know, all that, all those kinds of more, uh, strident types who I'm often lumped in with, you know, fairly or unfairly. Um, when it comes to the conservative movement, my answer is always, look, it's a symphony. You need some tubas and some percussions, but you also need some fine woodwinds and all the, and all the rest. Um, sort of like when you're tearing when you're tearing down and building up a new house, you need guys with sledgehammers and you need fine craftsmen with little exacto knives. And I think to the extent that the criticism of the conservative movement is becoming too unintellectual, has any validity, it's that the symphony has been playing too much on the heavy notes lately, and that we probably need some finer notes. But I, I don't think. It's at all true to say that the conservative movement doesn't have more than its share of intellectuals. Um, just their place in the mass media is smaller than I think I would like it to be these days. And, and, and the conservative writers, figures aren't always on, on the same page. So I know Chris Buck, who's Bill Buckley's son, just has this new novel out, and he quite openly says that the main character whom he mocks is someone who he modeled after Ann Coulter. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Chris is sui generis in so many different ways. I mean, I, I, I'm a fan of Chris, but uh, I think that's true. I mean, that gets to a larger point that I was trying to make is getting back to the book. Um, you know, scandalous the author would want to do that. Uh, the reigning conception of conservatism in the popular culture is that we're dogmatic, we're closed-minded, we're hide-bound, and all the rest. I gotta stay, stop saying it and all the rest. I'm getting a lot of criticism for it. I just only now started noticing it. Um, and the reality, though, is that it's the exact opposite, I would argue. That conservatism isn't dogmatic, at least not in the way that liberals claim. Precisely because we are not closed-minded. We are constantly arguing about our dogma. We're constantly trying to figure out where to draw the dogmatic lines. And we're constantly moving them. You know, and it's not just a debate between libertarians and conservatives. It's the debate between theocons and neocons and isolationists and, and internationalists and all the rest. This is one of the things that I love about conservatism is we love to have these arguments. It gets back to the comic book, you know, baseball card kind of thing. 
one of the meanings of dogma comes from the Greek means seems good. It's these uh, taboos or uh, what, what Jonathan Ralston Saul calls the unconscious civilization. These dogmatic ways of thinking that are simply baked into the cake and they are so absorbed that they're essentially invisible. Right? It's those things that we just simply take for granted. That's what liberalism is. Liberalism takes it for granted. Their dogma is simply... Um, uh, so hardwired into their DNA, they don't even realize it's dogma. That's why they think they're realists, is because they don't, they're not even aware of their biases. And I'll give you a concrete example of this. Uh, a few years ago, Peter Berkowitz, who you know, uh, he came out with two books called... It's a fellow at Hoover. Yes, fellow at Hoover. Um, uh, one was Varieties of Conservatism in American Thought, and the other one was Varieties of Progressivism in American Thought. And it was a bunch of collections from smart writers and eggheads on the left and the right, talking about the different kinds of progressivism and different kinds of conservatism. Well, the, the Varieties of Conservatism book is a useful book. It's a book that you and I would recognize as similar to countless other collections of conservative writings and symposia and, and all. Including one that you did, right? Yeah, exactly. Conservative That's right. And the, the, the conservative book was, it had a paleocon and a theocon and a neocon and an internationalist and an isolationist and, and they all arguing from their perspective within conservatives about first principles. The liberal book was five essays, six essays on how to win back the White House. And there was no effort to talk about, um, the different intellectual kinds of progressivism because in many respects, there aren't any. And I don't mean this in a pejorative sense. I mean, yes, in the salons and all the rest, you'll find examples of different kinds of progressivism, but they're not made on, on an intellectual basis. The left is far more coalitional, while the right is ideational. Um, and the coalition, and this gets to this difference between action and ideas. There is no theoretical reason <laughs> why, um, the party of the AFL-CIO should be the party of gay marriage. The only reason why is it's purely practical that you scratch my back, I scratch yours, right? It's, it's a coalitional approach to politics, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's what it is. It's all about power relationships. On the right, the basic approach is if you agree with us on eight out of ten of these things, you're a conservative. Or if... You want the government, you know, out of the leave me alone coalition thing, right? Where everyone shares a common interest in wanting the government to stop bothering them. It doesn't mean all those people agree on things. And so the, 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 the relationships between the two are different. And, uh, so the health of conservatism is that we argue about our dogma. And the, the health of liberalism in a way is that they don't even bother with dogma. And, the, and, and so for my purposes, I don't think you could have a good debate if one side isn't even acknowledging they have biases, right? I mean, it seems to me as a matter of common sense that the, the best way to be, have an honest understanding of reality is to acknowledge your biases and your prejudices, not deny they even exist. And uh, because liberalism denies its own biases, it's so much more dogmatic. That's why they think that the role of government is to do good when it can, where it can, whenever it can. And they don't even question it. Let me ask something about something that's come up a couple of times in the podcast. You mentioned Terry Anderson. You mentioned the, the gift in Pulp Fiction, which almost caused me to do a spit take. And you use pop culture as, as an idiom. And I know you talked about this with Hugh Hewitt. And I think you or Hugh said that in the 19th century, the idiom was literature and literary references. And now it's pop culture references. How do you think that plays out, given that the pop culture is overwhelmingly created by liberals? Um, interesting question. I think it, obviously you're right that, that the pop culture is, is overwhelmingly created by liberals. Although it's, as, as I get a higher and higher profile, I get opportunities to meet more and more, uh, conservatives working in Mufti in Hollywood and elsewhere. And so you mean in the closet? Yeah, yeah. They're not admitting what they yeah. are. I mean, and you know this, on the East Coast, in, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where I'm from, uh, in East Coast academic institutions, the tendency to 
hide your conservatism is is not unknown. I mean, I always used to joke that that I was like Christians in ancient Rome growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But I've never seen anything like the fear that you have in Hollywood among conservatives. It is it is kind of creepy. I think sometimes it's overblown. Sometimes they use it as an explanation for why they aren't more successful. Um, but it's at the same time, it is definitely real. And uh, so I'll stipulate that that exists. But at the same time, the popular culture is still the popular culture. And uh, most of us grow up in it long before we find out that we're politically conservative. And again, as part of my effort at, at persuading people to think or at least be open to conservative ideas, part of, the, part of that enterprise has to be humanizing myself, you know, being self-deprecating. Um, I also have to be honest, look, I mean, this is just, as you, again, as you know, this is the way I talk, and I am a pop culture... Encyclopedia. Uh, encyclopedia, I don't know, I, I, but it, I'm a creature of pop culture, and I, there's no getting around that. And um, uh, and so it helps to be authentic when you're trying to make this case, but it also helps to be funny. You know, it helps to sort of break the stereotype of a conservative. When I founded National Review Online, you know, I, I revere the, the old National Review, and I still revere, uh, you know, the print National Review, but the idea behind National Review Online was at least in part to telegraph that we weren't Bill Buckley's National Review anymore. It was the hipster upstart online thing back in the early days of the web. When, when nobody else was doing this. When nobody else was doing first, it. The first conservative opinion sites to go online. Right? Yeah, and the, certainly the first among the first successful ones. And the same thing with The Corner, the group blog which I created, was to create this, to, to sort of show, not tell, that first of all, there's a lot of disagreement on the right, that we're not monolithic, we're not dogmatic, as it were. Um, and... Uh, and that we're human beings. And so we talk about TV shows, we talk about movies and all, all that kind of thing. And, um, uh, and it's, a, it's important to, to do that. The old National Review had this reputation as nothing but Chesterton quotes and Latin puns. And there's a place for Chesterton quote and Latin puns, and I think I actually have at least a lot of Chesterton quotes in the book. But if you have, if you have no acquaintance with any of that stuff, it just comes across to the average reader and the average, you know, conservative-minded person as either obscurantism or appeals to authorities that they don't recognize. And so you have to sort of translate some of this stuff into the vernacular. And there are other people who are great at doing it in other ways. This is just where I'm, I have a comparative advantage. And, uh, one of the things I learned from working on National Review Online was to find my voice. And, and as you've been saying, that's what, what's in the tyranny of cliches. Yeah, I want to get back to the book because we are running a little tight on time. And I want to talk about a specific cliche, a couple if you get a chance. But one in particular that really jumped out at me was your chapter on the Catholic Church. I found not only very eye-opening, but also given who you are, as you said, a product of Jewish Upper West Side, here you are writing this full-throated defense of the Catholic Church. It, it's, it sort of uh, defies expectations. What, what was going on there? Well, um, as a conservative, first of all, I, I just like old institutions. Um, and I think that old institutions get a bad rap. Uh, the reason why institu old institutions get to be old is because they're actually far more flexible than people realize. The, the rap that people under, that old institutions get is that, particularly ones like the Catholic Church, is that they're monolithic, they're unwielding, unyielding, um, um, inflexible, and, when you think about it for two seconds, that defies common sense, because if they were those things, they would have snapped off and, and dried up and blown away a long time ago. And um, and so one of the things that, you know, I got out of working on liberal fascism is is to as often as possible ask, compared to what, right? And, and I think compared to what needs to be one of the central algorithms of the conservative mind. Because what what, what liberals do is they compare everything to utopia. But utopia doesn't exist. It is an impossible and idiotic standard, right? And so whenever they look back on the past, they see the past as a series of bigotries and stupid decisions that they hold against the past and that they project in a Whiggish way onto the past and say, look at those idiots. They thought the world was flat. Look at those idiots. They thought that, you know, um, you could get, uh, you could turn lead into gold or whatever. 
And my response is, compared to what? I mean, look at how the world was at the time. These were people trying to work their way through incredible darkness and ignorance and all all of that kind of thing. And if you look at it through that perspective, yes, the Catholic Church absolutely did terrible things. And I, I don't, you know, so I wouldn't say it's a completely full-throated defense. I mean, I... I half-throated defense. Half-throated defense. Uh, I, I think that the, you know, terrible things were done in the Inquisition. But compared to what? And it's very telling that the, in, during the Spanish Inquisition, common thieves begged to be put in Catholic jails because under the Inquisition you were treated much better than you were in the common prison. Uh, in the witch hunts, uh, the, the, the real villains in the story were the secular authorities. Time and time again, it was Catholic authorities who came in to put out the horror that was going on, to say, hey guys, let's not get out of hand. They would conduct inquiries to find out if people were witches, and as far more often they said, this person's not a witch. Um, the Catholic Church was a civilizing force in human history. Uh, as I think I put it in the book, uh, the left wants to see it as an anchor, and I would say it's more like a sail. And if you look at the history, particularly of the last 300 years, the Catholic Church gets blamed as this incredible impediment to progress. And I see that as sort of taking a sledgehammer to the soapbox that we're standing on. Um, that, obviously, I am no Catholic, and I have no plans to become one. But I do think that uh, the Catholic Church has spent a remarkable amount of time thinking about its dogma, thinking about why it believes things. And I think that is a, an important process in civilization um, that compared to a lot of that we get out of the Protestant revolution, there's a lot of wonderful things that came out of Protestantism. I'm not anti-Protestant, but the, uh, the sort of action-oriented faith, faith is its own reward-oriented approach seems to me to be a source of more zealotry than what the Catholic Church's approach was. The Catholic Church was interested in protecting institutions. Luther's criticism of it was that it was too worldly, not that it was too pious. Um, we seem to think that Martin Luther was a reformer because somebody because he ushered in an age of reform. Um, he was a reformer, but he was a very pious reformer. He was a zealous reformer. Um, Today we think of reformers, you know, religious reformers have to be moderates. He was no moderate. He was a passionate, true believer. And so I think the, the record, it's a fascinating record that, that needs to be cleared. And um, for, as a Jew, I find um, the similarities between Catholicism and, and, and Judaism really interesting because it's, it's so much more text-oriented than um, other faiths. You know, and the number one paragon of goodness in popular culture, we talk about popular idioms, is Mother Teresa. You might say something, well, he's good, but he's no Mother Teresa. So, Right, but this is, <laughs> this is sort of enormous hypocrisy, right? Mother Teresa is awesome, but you're a backward and idiot. You're a backward idiot if you subscribe to any of the motives that right. Mother Teresa had. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we have time to go over one more cliche okay. before we get to our final signature question here on New Books and Public Policy. And I want to talk about what my, my favorite story and cliche from the book was this notion that Voltaire said, I disagree with what you say, but we'll defend the death of your right to say it. You say that Voltaire never said it. It wasn't mm -hmm. even said until a hundred years afterwards, and it was somebody who said Voltaire might have thought that. Right. So can you talk about how that came about and what that cliche means today? Sure. I mean, it's been a while since I visited all the sources on this, but the, the gist of it is... No, it's okay. <laughs> um, the gist of it is is that uh, this other guy who wrote a book called uh, De La Spirit. Um, I can't remember his name right now. It was a really bad book, and uh, everyone thought it was a dumb book. Voltaire hated it and criticized it and thought he didn't get enough credit for what a genius he was in it. And the problem was, was that the, the king, or the Dauphin, I should say, uh, hated the book too and tried to censor it or censored it and made him sort of like in the same way that authors became celebrities when they were banned in Boston. Um, the author of uh, De La Spirit can't say the spirit. I just cannot say speak French. Um, uh, all of a sudden became a celebrity among intellectuals. And Voltaire has this thing where he says, what a fuss over an omelet. And all of a sudden, because he was banned, he becomes a celebrity. And uh, so a historian, and so all of a sudden he becomes very popular and Voltaire forgives him. And uh, 
so this historian is writing about it, you know, a hundred years or so later, says, in effect, Voltaire's position was he may defend, he may disagree with what he has to say, but defend the death of the right to say it. Became one of these, you know, celebrity controversialists, sort of like with, um, what's his name? Uh, the Satanic Versus guy, uh, Salman Rushdie, right? I mean, a lot of people may or may not have read the book, may or may not like the book, but all of a sudden, when there's a fatwa out to kill you, you become, you know, a hero. And uh, since then, my, my chief problem with it is, and it's one of the reasons why, getting back to the beginning of the conversation, where you asked me why I wrote the book, is I go on college campuses a lot, and these kids will often ask me, will often say at the end of my speech, you know, Mr. Goldberg, that was interesting. I have to say, I may defend... I may disagree with what you have to say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. And you can just see these administrators in the back of the room nodding how proud they are of this kid, and the professors are nodding, and, and all this. And it's utter BS. I mean, first of all, I mean, look, yeah, I mean, troops in Iraq, they may be doing that for me, but this kid isn't doing this for me. I mean, I, I don't for a second believe he's about to dive in front of a bullet for me. He says it at the end of my speech, not at the beginning of my speech, so it's, you know, it's sort of a moot point anyway. And it's a way of getting bravery on the cheap. It's a way of seeming like invidiously comparing yourself to me and saying, you know, I'll, you know, I think you're wrong, but I'm the better man because I'll defend to the death you're right to say it. And it's just, a, it's, it's just a lie. But moreover, it's not responsive to anything. And that's the thing that drives me crazy about these cliches is you know, on college campuses, you'll find these kids who will say, you know, who think I'm a, a raging ideologue for saying that having a strong national defense is important to keeping the peace. Oh, that sounds like an ideological thing to say and how crazy I am. And then they'll say, I just think violence never solved anything. And then they'll sit down as if they've made an argument. And, and that's the problem with these tyrannical cliches is that they are a way of avoiding having to make arguments. They're sort of argument closers. Um, and that's sort of why they drive me crazy. All right, well, our last question is our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is, if you were czar for a day, what would you do? And I mean this from the policy perspective, not that you'd have nubile slave girls give you Drake grapes. Um, I would, first of all, impose a, a tax cut for nubile slave girls. To be, <laughs> no, uh, um, I'm sure I had this coming. Uh, I would say, you know... Uh, I mean, I just get to impose any policy regime that I want. You know? But based on the, what you've learned from this book, it's probably best way. Okay, yeah. Um, um, I mean, I, I'm just trying to avoid a cop-out. I mean, if we're going to be strictly public policy, I'll just, I can just put on my pundit hat and say, you know, I would, I would impose some version of, you know, the Ryan plan and a grandfather and people over 55 on their entitlements and, you know, and well, you know, no, but you're addressing <laughs> the entitlement question. Yeah, no, but I was pressing that. I mean, Herb Stein, who we both you know used to know when we were at AI, um, had that famous Stein's Law, which is basically that any trend that can't go on forever eventually must stop. And we are on a path that is unsustainable, so eventually it must stop. And the question is, is how are we going to stop it? And I, I think that the most pressing problem that we have in this country is um, the fact that we've had policymakers for several generations now think that there's nothing wrong with America that making us more like Europe won't fix. And all you have to do is look at Europe to see why that's a really stupid proposition. So fixing the entitlement process, you know, would be um, the best place to start. Um, introducing free market principles into healthcare would be another place to go. Um, and, you know, uh, Flattening the tax code and all that. I mean, I, again, as a, as a pundit, I, you know, there aren't a huge number of practical public policy things here. It's more of a philosophical orientation about how to look at public policy problems um, than it is, you know, a, a policy primer. There are just better people for that. Well, well let me help, help you out a little bit. Because okay. <laughs> uh, I agree with you about the need to address the entitlement problem and the entitlement crisis. But the arguments that you talk about in the book are made to address the fact that some people don't want to attack the entitlement crisis. And so I think using the book can be a way to rebut some of the arguments that people make against addressing entitlement. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, the, the worldview that overall the book is trying to compete with, you know, I have all these chapters on things like community and unity and... and oh, uh, just progress, forward progress. Progress, right. You know, the other day uh, on another show, someone played me a clip of Obama saying, if one American has a problem, we all have. 
Which, of course, is... Sequel bait. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, is ludicrous on its face. Um, You know, if that's true, I want President Obama to come to my house and fix my toilet. Um, But it betrays a worldview that says, you know, we're all in it together, right? This cult of unity that says we're all in it together. And uh, that, uh, you know, this conception of community that says uh, we have to define ourselves purely in relationship to the state. And I think that this is the overarching cliche that is not cliche, but cliched way of thinking that I'm trying to rebut in this book because it's a fundamental category error. And if you, if you try to build policy off of a category error, first of all, you're going to do incredible violence to the constitution. The whole point of our, our liberties is that our problems are for the most part, our problems. And that's a wonderful thing because that means our successes are for the most part, our successes. And if you work from the assumption of, you know, whether it's for universal coverage or that one person's problem is everybody's problem, you're going to create a system that at its core cannot work. And the, the argument, if I was going to do a truly egghead book, the argument that I would want to extend from this book would be one I make briefly in there about how the fundamental argument of the 20th century is between Friedrich Hayek and John Dewey, not between Friedrich Hayek and John Maynard Cade. That's a math argument. That bores me. The argument between Dewey and Hayek is over the knowledge problem. Dewey thinks that individual people can become smart enough to design a whole society, which is crazy talk. Hayek understands that no one can ever be smart enough, and that's why you need markets and prices and all the rest to uh, allow for spontaneous order to emerge organically from below. Dewey thinks it can be imposed from above. And this, at the end of the day, is the argument about collectivism versus individualism between freedom and, and, and order. And it is one that I think liberals don't grapple with because they don't really understand their own ideology. Well, in contrast to Piers Morgan, we here at New Books in Public Policy know what a category error is. Appreciate your use of it. Appreciate you coming on the show and look forward to having you for the Dewey vs. Hayek sequel. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been listening to an interview with Jonah Goldberg, the author of The Tyranny of Clichés, How Liberals Cheat in the War of Ideas. In our interview, Jonah identified some of these clichés, such as if some people have no ideology, social justice, social Darwinism, the war on science, and Voltaire's saying, which he never said, that I disagree with what you say, but will defend it to the death your right to say it. Through it all, Jonah affects this conversational style, replete with pop culture references that he knows and recognizes that Americans will get and understand. He uses this to be able to reach out to all Americans, including especially younger Americans, who speak in that pop culture idiom. And he uses this as a very conscious strategy to reach out to them and make his arguments as approachable as possible. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jonah. I hope you continue to listen to new books in public policy. And this is Tevi Troy, your host, signing off and saying, until next time, keep reading.